0: People who can't handle the realities of this life need a supernatural sky daddy to sort of help them through. Uh, has anyone ever said that to you? People said it to me. Uh, it's a common way that people who want to attack Christianity, attack Christians, they say, really, the only reason you're here at church is because you just can't handle stuff. You're a bit weaker than other people, and so you need some sort of supernatural help. Does anyone still read the Sydney Morning Herald? Anyone? No, no one. That's probably a good thing. Uh, I continue to read The Sitting Point Herald in the hope that one day I might find something to read in it. But anyway, uh, Peter Fitzsimons in The Herald, if you've ever read him, every Saturday, every Sunday, he writes an article where he just looks for something to bag out Christians and to say Christians are weak, Christians are silly, Christians just need their supernatural sky daddy, that's his line, to, to help them out with life. And he just says it over and over again. He's built quite a good career out of it. So there you go, you can do something with that. But anyway, how do you respond to that? How do you respond when people say that about you as a Christian or about Christianity in general? Uh, One response and one that sort of my personality sort of quite likes is to take that as a challenge and prove it wrong. And to say, line up like a list of all the impressive people who are Christians and say, well, who are you calling weak and unimpressive? Look at these impressive people, look at these intellectuals, look at these scientists, look at these sports stars, look at these successful businessmen, whatever it is, and look at them, and they, you're saying all Christians are weak? Well, look at them, I can line them up. And and there's sort of a, there's a worthwhileness in that for showing the rationality of the gospel. I think a lot of people out there believe that it's impossible to be a scientist and be a Christian, but you can actually say, well, Well, actually, when you look at it, for every atheist scientist, there is a scientist who believes in God and even a scientist who believes in the Lord Jesus, who is a Christian. Uh, And in fact, when you go back through history, most of the great scientists have come from a Christian background and have been Christians themselves, many of them, because it's been their Christian faith that's led them to explore what the world is about and explore God's creation and so forth. So that's one temptation, one way of sort of responding to that criticism is just to say, no, Well, look at that, I can show you just as many impressive Christians as as unimpressive atheists. But interestingly, I don't think the Apostle Paul would have done that. He wouldn't have got into that sort of a comparison game. He would have said, yeah, do you know what? You're right. I am pretty weak and insignificant. Because actually, I'm a lot like you. That's how he would have responded. He would have said, I'm a lot like you. I'm weak I'm insignificant. I struggle in so many ways. I know that I'm weak and I'm broken and I do need a crutch. I do need God and his grace to get through in this sinful, broken world. I'm a lot like you. The difference is I'm self-aware. The difference is I recognize my weakness and I recognize God for who he is. And in this passage today, Paul actually says, I'm actually pleased that I'm not very impressive. I'm actually... Please that that you don't think i'm very significant and powerful and all that if you remember the the false teachers we've been looking at the first three chapters of two corinthians they'd come to corinth after paul and they'd said don't listen to paul listen to us we're far more impressive than him we're much better public speakers than him uh, we, we have these letters of recommendations from powerful influential people to say listen to us not paul and they looked impressive whereas they said look look at Paul look at him compared to us and how impressive wherever he goes he gets rocks thrown at him and people put him in prison and and people run him out of town surely a messenger of God's glory should look glorious should be impressive should sort of look victorious now it would have been tempting for Paul to justify himself as I read two Corinthians every time I just wait for Paul to come out and say, Well, hang on a second. I'm not that boring. I know there was that incident with the bike falling out of the window where when I but that was late at night and I'd preached a very long sermon and, and so and, and Paul could have said I, I can give you some letters from the Apostle Peter and the Apostle James saying, Listen to Paul, he knows what he's talking about and frankly, how many churches have you planted? I've planted every church in the ancient world. So you know Paul could have said I'm actually not that unimpressive. He could have played the comparison game, but he didn't. What he said was, I love the fact that people think I'm unimpressive. In fact, I love the fact that I am unimpressive. In fact, that is a good thing, because then you won't get distracted and think you've got to follow me instead of following the one I want to tell you about, who is the Lord Jesus. And that is the main point of this passage. Paul says, I don't want you to get distracted into following some man... I want to get you to see how wonderful Jesus is. And Paul wants to say to us, be very, very wary of teachers who want you to follow them, who who want you to like them, who, who want you to sort of hang on their every word. Paul says, I'd actually rather you forget I even exist. I'd rather I was invisible because I want you to flock to Jesus. I want you to see Jesus. That is what I'm aiming for. So let's look at the passage together open up chapter 4 look at verse 1 he says therefore since we have this ministry because we were shown mercy we do not give up would have been really really tempting for Paul to give up on these guys to give up on the Corinthians just tell them all to get lost you could have said I'm just going to go and work with the Ephesians and the Philippians and the Colossians they like me they ask me to come they, they love my letters and want me to write more but he knows the mercy of God that has been shown to him means he will not give up on other people. He wants them to get the gospel and understand the gospel because he knows the gospel. He knows what it is to be forgiven by God. He will not give up telling them about it no matter how hard it gets. He's not going to let them trade in the true gospel for the one these false teachers are peddling. But he says, what I want you to see is the difference between me and the way I teach you and these false teachers. And that's really important. Look at verse 2. He says, instead, we have renounced shameful secret things, not walking in deceit or distorting God's message, but commending ourselves to every person's conscience in God's sight by an open display of the truth. Paul says, I want you to believe. I want you to listen to what I've got to say, but I'm not going to trick you into believing. Not in the way I teach. I'm not going to resort to trickery in the way I teach you. And I'm not going to do it in the way I live my life. With me, what you see is what you get. And you can look at the way I live, and you can look at the way I teach and what I teach, and you just see the truth. I'm not going to try and make you think I'm more impressive than I am. I'm not going to use tricks to mess with your emotions to get you to respond more positively to me. Sadly that is exactly what so many so-called Christian teachers have done for 2,000 years and continue to do today. They put on a show of being religious and holy but when you look at the way they live they are deceptive and ungodly or they try to create an environment and mess with people's emotions is what the cults do. they they deprive people of sleep and then they play lots of emotion charged music and they dim the lights to con you into reacting and wanting to follow jesus paul says i'm not going to do any of that sort of stuff i'm just going to be open and honest with you and share the truth of the gospel with you more than that paul says i want you to believe but i will not change my message for anyone i'm not going to distort god's word i'm not going to make it more palatable for you i'm not going to get rid of the bits you don't like I'm not going to even just focus on the bits you do like. Sadly, again, over the years, many so-called Christian teachers have done that too. There's plenty of churches that just sort of cut whole slabs out of the Bible and don't teach on them because, well, they sort of grate against where society's going now. We don't want to talk about those topics. Or they'll tone down the message and they say, we'll tell you about the love of God, but we're not going to talk about his judgment. We're going to tell you how you can be saved and all about the wonderful message of salvation, but we'll never tell you what you're being saved from. And in fact, you then can't actually understand what it is to be saved unless you understand what it is that happens if you're not saved. But Paul says, I want you to listen. I want you to believe what I'm telling you, but I will not do those things. Instead, what will I do? I'll just openly and clearly share the truth of God's word with you. And I'll openly and clearly share my life with you so that you can see there is no difference. I'm not putting on a show. I'm just going to be honest with you. That's what he says. He does. No secrets. No pretense. And then I'll leave it with you and your conscience because God sees into your heart. And I'll leave it with you and I'll leave it with your conscience to decide what to do with it. If you ever want to know what is my job, as a preacher, there it is. My job is to clearly share the truth of God's word with you. That is my job. And to seek uh, to live a life of godliness that matches it. That is what I'm called to do. Beware the preacher who lives a different life in private to what he says from the pulpit. And beware the preacher who wants to be famous, who wants to be the center of attention, who wants people to follow them. The two biggest compliments you can give a godly teacher, if after Troy's preached you want to come and say, Troy you've done a good job, what he wants you to say to him, and don't just say it to him now because I've told you to, he wants it to be true, the biggest compliment you can give a gospel preacher is you were clear and you were faithful. That is the biggest compliment you can give. I'd much rather you say that about me than you tell me you like my funny jokes. And please tell me you like my funny jokes, I enjoy it when you laugh. But you know the point. Clear and faithful. And that is your job in whatever ministry you are involved in. And if you're a Christian, you are involved in a ministry. So if you are a scripture teacher, that is your job. To clearly and faithfully present the gospel. If you are a gospel team leader, if you're a youth group leader, if you're a kids church leader, or if you are just seeking to share the gospel with your friend at uni or in your workplace there is your job. Present the truth of God's word clearly and faithfully. And the reason Paul could do that, because you can almost hear the Corinthians saying, yeah, we love that clear and faithful stuff, Paul, but the false teachers seem to get bigger crowds. These other guys seem to get a better response than you. Paul says, I don't care. I don't care if they've got a bigger crowd than I've got, if they've got a bigger crowd than I've got. I can do this because I know something so important. And this is the key thing to take away from this passage. I know that people's response is up to God. He says, if I do not share the truth of the gospel clearly and faithfully, then get angry at me. It is my fault that you haven't understood it. But if people hear it clearly proclaimed and clearly taught and they reject it, the problem is not with the message The problem's not even with the messenger. The problem is with that person and their heart. Look from verse 3. He says, But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul says if a person hears the gospel clearly proclaimed clearly proclaim, that's hard to say later on a Sunday evening if they hear it clearly proclaimed and they reject it the problem is not that I haven't been persuasive enough the problem isn't that that I haven't told it with a funny story to make get their attention the problem is that the devil has blinded their eyes that's who the god of this age is the devil He prowls around like a lion, tempting and deceiving, and he is still at work now. And his job, his calling, if you like, though it's not from God, is to stop people believing in Jesus. That is all he wants to do. And he does that by blinding our minds so that we cannot see God for who he is, and we cannot see the Lord Jesus for who he is in all his glory. And the devil uses every trick in the book. The devil makes some people think they're too smart for the gospel. In our arrogance, people say, oh, I'm too smart to believe in a man who died for our sins 2,000 years ago. And then he says, makes other people believe they're too dumb for the gospel. And they say, oh, I come to church and I can't understand it. The devil doesn't care. He doesn't care about the truth. He just doesn't want you to believe in Jesus. And he cultivates in us that arrogance that says there is no God. And he cultivates in us that arrogance that makes us think we are the centre of the universe and we have no need for Jesus. And why do we need to be forgiven anyway? He veils our minds with religion or with no religion. He doesn't care. He veils it with the distractions of the world. But all he wants to do is to stop us believing in Jesus. And you and I, before we came to faith in Jesus, Our minds were veiled like that too. That is what we were like before we came to know Jesus. And every person has that veil over their minds. And the only way that veil is ever removed is if God removes it. That's how it's removed. It's only if God opens our eyes that we can see. I love verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. It says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing verse just look at it again he's talking about Genesis 1 you know right back at the start of the Bible right back before time when there was darkness and what did God do? With a word said let there be light. Can you imagine if you were there that you can't have been there because human beings weren't created yet but imagine you were there darkness and then suddenly light well God says a miracle like that is what I have done in your heart your heart was in darkness veiled but I have come and shone my light into your heart and I've got rid of your ignorance and I've got rid of your fear and I've got rid of your guilt and instead I have allowed you to see my grace and my love and my mercy by seeing Jesus clearly that is the miracle. God has done in you if you have come to faith in Jesus and that is what he does for any person who comes to faith as we hear the wonderful news of the gospel God opens our eyes so that we can see it and believe it and trust it for ourselves and knowing that is incredibly liberating because what it did for Paul is it liberated him from caring what they thought of him He said, I don't give a stuff what you think about me. I don't care if you don't think I'm impressive, because it doesn't matter. Because it's not up to me to be impressive, to, to get people to believe the gospel. That's God's work. My job is to present the gospel clearly. And then he says, do you know what? Actually, it's better if you're not impressive. If you think you're pretty good, I won't ask you to put up your hands. If you think you're pretty impressive, Paul says, you won't be very good at sharing the gospel with people. Because you'll get in the way. You'll get in the way, and you'll stop people seeing the glory of Jesus. A little while back, when we were we were down in Canberra, and uh, Victoria and I made the mistake of thinking our kids were old enough to visit an art gallery. <laughs> For years, we'd gone to you know all the places with miniature trains and all that sort of stuff, and we thought this time we're going to go to an art gallery. It lasted I think fourteen minutes before Sam had us nearly thrown out for touching things, you know, all that sort of stuff. But when we were there for that brief 14 minutes, when you look, when an art gallery puts one one of the great paintings up, do you know what they do with it? They paint the wall behind it totally white. And they just hang then one painting on the wall so that you're not distracted in any way they don't paint all sorts of other things all around it with all sorts of other bright colors because then you would go well hang on where's the painting especially with the one we looked at in canberra blue poles have you ever seen that it just looks like someone's painted a wall so you'd get very distracted if they didn't have it on a white wall but but the point is that's what they do and the reason is so you can say that is glorious that's what i'm here to see well paul says that is what a faithful christian does what a faithful minister of the gospel does they get themselves out of the way so you just see the glory of jesus that's his point in verse five look at verse five he says for we are not proclaiming ourselves but jesus christ as lord and ourselves as your slaves because of jesus paul is saying i don't want you to follow me i don't want you to look at me and say what a great preacher how convincing was he I don't want you to put the spotlight on me. That's what those false teachers want you to do. But for me, I just want you to see Jesus. I want you to be amazed by Jesus. In fact, I serve you so that you can see Jesus clearly. Which brings us to verse 7, which is, I think, the key verse for this whole book of 2 Corinthians. Look at it there. He says, now we have this treasure in clay jars so that this extraordinary power May be from God and not from us. When we think of a clay jar, we think of something you buy at the markets and put on a shelf, and it's actually something expensive. But for in the ancient world, a clay jar was as close as they came to a disposable cup. You know, when you get one of those polystyrene cups, the pro- I have a problem with polystyrene cups. I cannot drink a drink without poking my finger through them. I have this because I know it's disposable. I rip it apart and I. And I end up with coffee all down my arm and, and that sort of thing. Or when I've got cordial, I bite the bottom out of it and drink it that way. I don't know why. It's just polystyrene does that to me. I... Well, that's what a clay jar was. It was so unimpressive. And it had cracks in it. And, and when you had a crack in it, you said, oh, I don't care. It's worth nothing. You just threw it away. There were clay broken bits. Of... Whenever the archaeologists dig up the ancient world, they find thousands of clay jars that was just what you had you see Paul says we don't put the diamond of the gospel in a gold goblet because then you'd say well hang on what what's the glorious thing I'm looking at is it the gold goblet or is it the diamond he says no, no no God puts the glory of his gospel in weak broken clay jars like me so that you can be in no doubt that you were not converted by the apostle Paul And you were not converted by preacher Phil or whoever it was you sat under when you came to know Jesus. The power came from God because we're too unimpressive to have that power. That's the point he's making. Paul says, It's better that I'm not very impressive because then you know that it's God who saved you, God who worked in you from the very beginning to the very end. I want you to know that the power and the glory that have saved you have come from Jesus and not from me. I'm just a paper cup. That's what Paul is saying. Can I tell you, this is so important in our modern world. Because the modern church, if it is like any church of the ancient world, is like Corinth. The modern world is obsessed with looks and success. And so just like we have celebrity chefs. Who would have thought we would have celebrity chefs 30 years ago? You know, So we have celebrity chefs. We now have celebrity preachers. And people judge a preacher by how many people go and hear him at a conference and by how good he is at walking around a stage in a shiny suit with a Madonna mic on, telling funny stories. And how many people buy the records of his band that plays in the background. And it can be tempting to judge a preacher or a ministry on the basis of worldly impressiveness. But the test of any preacher, the test of any ministry, including your own ministry, is does he or she present the gospel clearly and faithfully that's what matters now come with me now to the second half of our chapter and we're going to more briefly deal with the second half of the passage one of the big criticisms they made of paul was that he just suffered so much Uh, perhaps they were saying things like you know if god was really with him he'd be much more triumphant He'd be much more glorious. And as I've said already, that sort of teaching is alive and well in the modern church. There are plenty of preachers who say, how you see God's blessing is in how wealthy you are, how healthy you are, and how prosperous you are. That's a sign of God's blessing. Paul says, actually, what declares the glory of God to our world is not our success and not living an easy life. What declares the glory of God to our world is Christians Suffering. Such a countercultural message. But he says, What declares the glory of God to our world is how well we go at dealing with the hardness of life, not the easiness. Please get this right. Don't mishear what the gospel promises. The gospel promises every blessing in Christ. But in this life, Jesus promises that if you follow me, you will suffer. You will suffer. Because that's what it is to live in this fallen, sinful world. But he says, it is how we deal with the suffering. It's how we deal with it that makes a massive statement to our world. Look from verse 8. He says, we are pressured in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. It's the but-nots in those verses that show people how wonderful our hope is as Christians. You see, you climbing the ladder of success in your life, it's not wrong, it's not a bad thing. You climbing the corporate ladder or whatever your career aspirations is, not necessarily a bad thing. But it doesn't actually commend Jesus to anyone. What commends Jesus to people is the way you deal with disappointment. And the way when you are passed over or wrongly not progressed and you still deal with it with joy and grace and contentment, that preaches the gospel to people. Because that is so different to the way our world deals with that sort of thing. You living an easy, carefree life doesn't commend Jesus to people. But the way you face illness or the way you face loss with faith and joy And unshaken contentment, that says something incredible about the hope we have as Christians. Isn't that right? Doesn't the way someone deals with suffering, still having joy in the gospel, doesn't that preach a thousand more words than the way someone says, I thank God that I won Wimbledon this year? You see, look at verse 10. It says, We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. I think it's a really difficult verse. But I think what he's saying is, when we suffer and struggle like Jesus did, and when people look at us and say, look, I can see actually the death of Jesus in that person, that shows people that our hope is something for beyond this life, that we have the hope of the resurrection, that we look forward to something far more incredible than this life. It shows people we're different. And in fact, Paul says, the whole reason I am willing to suffer all this, and he suffered a lot, suffered more than any of us have, and I pray will. He did have rocks thrown at him. He was thrown into wild an- pits with wild animals. You know, all, Everything happened to him, he says, but I'm willing to go through all of that if it will just encourage you to keep trusting Jesus yourselves. Look at verse 15. I love it. He says, indeed, everything, and he means every suffering he suffered, Everything is for your benefit, so that the grace extended through more and more people may cause thanksgiving to increase to God's glory. He so says, I put up with all of this so that you will see what a wonderful hope we have as Christians. You'll see that it's worth suffering anything for the hope we have in Jesus. I read an incredible story during the week. It's from a lady who grew up in Congo in uh, West Africa. And uh, she was the daughter of a missionary family, which makes her a missionary as well. She was there as part of it. And she was invited back from England or America or wherever she was from. She was invited back for the 100th anniversary of missionaries taking the gospel to the Congo. And so there was this massive celebration and she talked about it and how they, you know, they had a sermon from the archbishop and they had Bible reads and they had song and dance and it was in Africa and it went on for several hours. And, And right at the end though, They got this very old man to come and talk about when the missionaries first came. Because he was the closest they could get to 100 years before when the missionaries had first come. And he said, you know, when the missionaries first came, we were very suspicious of them. We were very hostile to them. And then he dropped a bombshell. He said, the elders of our tribe poisoned them. This is back in like 1880 or something. He said, they poisoned them and many of them died. And nearly all their children died that's what they did to them because these were white men coming in from england or wherever and they said we poisoned them we put poison in their food and got rid of them and so he said these missionaries they wouldn't go away though and even as they buried their children in africa and some of them buried their wives and some of them buried their husbands here in africa the ones who survived kept telling us about jesus And I'll read out what he then said, the last line he said. He said, it was not how they lived that convinced us. It was as we watched how they died that we decided we wanted to live as Christians. Isn't that true? Can't you say, you could say about that that those missionaries carried the death of Jesus in their bodies. So that those people could see the life they could have in Jesus. I've been to two funerals over the last two weeks. One was a Christian funeral, one was not a Christian funeral. Can I tell you the difference between a funeral where a person knows and loves Jesus and where you say, we are looking forward to life? That preaches an incredible message to non-believers compared to a funeral where there is no hope because the people do not know Jesus. It is how we die, as somber as that sounds on a Sunday evening, It's how we suffer that preaches the gospel to our world. Because the world has no hope. The world avoids suffering. We say, what have we got to look forward to? We have something far better than this. And that is Paul's point in the final three verses. Come with me to verse 16. I'm just going to read out these verses and make a couple of comments on them. He says, therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed... That's our body. So Even though you're throwing rocks at my head, I don't care because our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction, I love how he can call being stoned and thrown to the animals a momentary light affliction. Our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen for what is seen is temporary, for what is unseen is eternal. These false teachers are saying, look at Paul. Look at how unimpressive he is. Look at what a failure he is. Paul says, well, if you look at what you see, I am a failure. My body is broken. I'm going to die. But even as they throw rocks at me, my faith grows every day. You see, and whatever happens to me, whatever suffering I face, it's nothing compared to what we look forward to as Christians. The incomparable weight of glory. See, how we suffer and fail in this life declares far more powerfully what we really believe than how we succeed. So my prayer for every one of us here tonight is that we will have such a clear picture of how wonderful Jesus is. And we will have such a clear picture of how wonderful the hope we look forward to is That even in our small ways, the way we suffer and the way we fail will point people to Jesus, just like Paul did. And I pray that as people see us in all our weakness, they will want to know the one we trust in, which is Jesus, the glorious Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Paul's example, that he was willing to suffer in so many ways. For the benefit of others so that others could see the glory of jesus and father we pray that in our small ways people might look at us in all our brokenness